Bruchem Aboyim to the fifth in the continuing series of lectures on Rabbi Yosheben Soloveitchik's emergence of ethical man. Um, we're up to this to, up to this week, chapter two, which is entitled "Man as a Carnivorous Being," on page thirty-one. And here in this chapter, last chapter, um, Rabbi Soloveitchik um, spoke about the relationship between man and plant, and even moreover, spoke about man as a plant. Here in chapter 2, Rabbi Soloveitchik is not only going to speak about the relation between man and animal, but actually is going to begin a discussion of man as animal, which actually really continues um, more into chapter 3, but we're going to speak about the relation between man and an animal. Now, Rabbi Soloveitchik begins by actually uh, examining the history of the relation between men and animals as we find in, in the Chumash. And in the Chumash you find a, actually a, a history with a very, very distinct periods of change in the relationship between men and animals. So for example, we know that Odom right, was, was not supposed to have been an animal eater, but actually was supposed to have eaten um, grass and seeds. And as it says, um, in Bereshit, quoting the, the verse in, in Genesis, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth. To you it shall be for food. And this is a comparison to, also to the, um, the animals and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, wherein there is life. I have given every green herb for you, and it was so. So in other words, in the beginning, Adam Arishan, was intended just to have been a, a plant eater. And um, meat was, um, was, um, was forbidden to him. Now, of course, there's a dispute. Was actually it forbidden for him to eat meat or to, or to kill an animal to eat meat? But in any case, no, no, there's no question about it that primordial man, as he says, what, was in fact actually meant to have been a vegetarian. So we have here the concept that man was created as a vegetarian and certainly was commanded as a person who was not to have slaughtered meat. This is um, a quantum of Now, the first major, um, in fact, the um, we have in Bereshit, of course, a series of um, crimes, acts of wisdom. Um, the um, the um, a very um, we see that in the um, there is the for example the the marble, the flood, right. Um, where it says that um, um, there was corruption, and the Torah only speaks about the corruption of man, but the corruption, in fact, actually was both um, man and beast. And because of this, the entire world was actually, um, um, there was a gezeira, there was a, um, a command to destroy, the Kodesh Baruch Hu to destroy the entire world. In addition to that, in Bereshis, the Torah speaks about what's called B'nei Ha'elokim, He's saying, he translates this as distinguished man, and quoting from the verse, he saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they took them for wife for all whom they choose. And in fact, the Torah calls this to be Hamas. Now, what is Hamas? So, Soloveitchik says, Hamas is the universal act of interfering with somebody else's right and prerogative, usurping something that is not mine. The act of overreaching oneself and reaching out to the non-self. Gzela, which is theft, is a specific act of Hamas. 
which concrete goods are taken away from the rightful owner. So, in other words, Hamas is a crime which, in fact, um, includes both the chet, the sin of B'nai Ha'elohim, right, who saw B'nai Sa'adam, and also, too, the chet of the Babel, as it's clear from the Psukim and also from Chazal, too, that the Chasim Sadin, the final judgment, was because there was an act of Hamas. And Hamas means taking that which is beyond um, what is accorded to you. And this is an act of Gezel. Um, now, so we have over here, interesting enough is, is that man begins as a person, as a being who is instructed to eat grass and not to eat animals. And the sin, right, the first sin in history have to do with man usurping or, over, or usurping other people's boundaries, usurping other people or other domains and overstepping his own boundaries which is a sort of like a generalized form of theft, of gezel. Now, what happens is, is that a Kodesh Baruch Hu brings a mabul, brings a flood to the earth, and after um, Noyach, of course, survives with his family, and after they come out of the Teva, out of the Ark, then, in fact, actually man is allowed to actually to eat animals, and not only plants. And this is the Pasuk in Bereshis, right? Is that man is actually given every beast of the earth and every bird of the air. And what Rasulavechik understands is that there's now a new relationship between man and animal. He says, a new relationship is established between man and animal, tension engendered by fear and dread. Animals afraid of man flees before him. Why? Because he has lost confidence in man, Instinctively, he feels animosity, evil designs on the part of man. Here, the revolutionary change is clearly formulated. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that, li- that lives shall be food for you. So, in other words, now man is allowed to eat animals, right? And this is a major change in the after the flood, from before the flood. However, as Rosalovechik says, is the Torah very happy about this change? Somehow we intuitively feel this silent, tragic note that pervades the whole chapter. The Torah was compelled to concede defeat to human nature that was corrupted by man himself and willy-nilly approved the radical change in him. Hamas, reaching out after a life, became habitual with man. At once the Torah began to regulate the murder of other lives to restrict its practice by complicating its procedure. And he quotes the famous Quran in Kedushin, the Torah only provides for human passions. It is better for Israel to eat the flesh of animals that are richly slaughtered than the flesh of animals that are perished. So, in other words, we have over here a new concept that of eating meat, which Bishop understands is a compromise to man because of man's passions and because of the crimes of Hamas. Now, a further connection Rabbi Yishabelov sort of speaks about is actually we see here, at least here explicitly in the Chumash the first case of a sacrifice of a carbon. And on page 35, he says here, a special interest is the fact that the injunction against meat consumption was cancelled after Noah brought his first sacrifice. And there he brings the Psukim that Noah builds a Mizbeach. And in other words, so we have over here not only a radical change in the relationship of man to animal, permitting man to hunt and to kill animals, I shouldn't say hunt, to slaughter and to kill animals, 
but in this and eat their meat, but also the concept of a covenant sacrifice. Now, the fact is, is that Rabbi Salavajah goes along and brings many other psukim, many other verses of the Chumash, which also express what you would say a negative aspect towards meat eating. And for example, in the Doha Midbar, when the people are crying that they want meat, so therefore, meat is associated with taiva, which Rosalovitchik says means a lust and illicit demand. And in fact, this arouses divine wrath, and this is um, in the Doha Midbar, and um, basically, the Torah still does not look upon the eating of meat as something which is um, a desirable trait of man. Now, he goes on, and once again, we're speaking about actually um, the evolution, the history of the relationship between man and animals, that in fact, we see that in Vayikra, initially, um, and he, right, the, um, the, um, a person was not allowed to eat meat, meaning to, to, to shech, to slaughter meat and to eat meat, unless he brought us a korban. And therefore, we have in Vayikra and Parakut Zion, the notion was called shchutechut, which means slaughtering an animal outside of the, at that time, the Mishkan, because all meat was permitted to slaughter, all else was to slaughter only if a person brought it as a korban. And Rasulovitchik, in fact, notes the fact that what the Torah, of course, at this point, um, forbids is, of course, eating of the blood. And the blood, in fact, actually has to be spilled, and eating blood is actually equated to a form of murder. Now, of course, later on, we learn in Devarim, in Deuteronomy, that in fact, actually, since when the, when the, the Mishkan and then the Beis HaMikdash would be the, the only place where people would be able to offer sacrifices, that people would, natu- would be naturally living further away from the Mishkan, they, every time they wanted to eat meat, they couldn't bring a korban, they couldn't bring a sacrifice, therefore the Torah allowed people um, to eat meat even if it wasn't a sacrifice, called Basataifa. And of course, the Torah once again speaks about that even if you're allowed to sacrifice because it's too far far away to bring a korban, nonetheless, you're not supposed to eat any blood. And Rabbi Salavechik says the Torah is ruthless in this condemnation of the blood eater, and there it quotes the very psukim. And in fact, he uses a phrase, I will set my face against that person, right, which according to Rabbi Salavechik, is actually a phrase like this only appears one other place, and that's, um, in fact, actually in the, in the context of child sacrifices. So we see how very, very much the Torah was, you know, was um, was very, very mocked on a person to have eaten blood, dumb, right? Which is also part of the condemnation of the notion of eating something which is a life form on the level of animals. Now. So this is the history of man's post-vegetarian um, um, history. In other words, of, is, that basically we go from the Dohamabul, and then we come to the Mishkan, and then the Mishkan, in other words, meaning in the Midbar, in the wilderness, and then afterwards we come to El Tisrael, the Beis Mikdash, and even though man is allowed to slaughter animals, nonetheless, somehow the initial prohibition of killing, of slaughter, right, is maintained through the prohibition of eating dumb, of eating blood. Okay. Now, Rabbi Soloveitchik 
wants to explain all of this. In other words, on page 40, right, he says the implication is clear. Whoever kills an animal for non-sacrificial purposes is guilty of bloodshed and a murder. The term shfichos domim applies equally to the slaughter of man and animal. Under a certain aspect, the life of the animal is in place on the equal plane with that of man. Why? So somebody's now trying to explain this. Now, how does he explain this? So it turns out that he now combines two very, very interesting concepts. And this, in my opinion, is probably the, obviously not the only, but one of the very, very important ideas in Rabbi Soloveitchik's book. And in a certain sense, Rabbi Soloveitchik is presenting us with what I would call the metaphysics of the halacha. Now, he doesn't speak about this explicitly in the emergence of ethical man, but in the lectures on Genesis, which I spoke about, which I guess until today still remains a teret there Rabbi Soloveitchik says in the very beginning that the purpose of his lectures is to explain the metaphysics of the halacha. That's what he speaks about in lecture one. These are the, um, the Blau lectures. The metaphysics of the halacha. But as Rasulavetchik goes on, he doesn't really present really so much a metaphysics of the halacha. The lectures actually end with a description of the Shabbos in Kabbalistic terms. And there Rabbi Soloveitchik tries to describe the Kabbalistic worlds in terms of the relationship between ontology and ethics. Namely, Rabbi which is, by the way, a theme. In other words, Rabbi will be kash to be sham. There, Rabbi Soloveitchik um, makes a very, very strong point of claiming that the Torah rejects a dichotomy between ethics and ontology as Kant did, but rather Torah understands that ethics is part of ontology, meaning is that there's a ethical content to the objective world, and therefore men can, can draw ethics from the world. Now, the fact is, is that the world doesn't necessarily mean the physical world, it can mean the spiritual world too, which means our salvagic understands that if I look at the world metaphysically in the proper way, it contains within it a concept of ethics. So when Rasulavechik speaks about the metaphysical assumption of the locha, what he's saying is if I look at the world in the metaphysical in the proper way from a metaphysical point of view, I could there, thereby understand a concept, have a draw out a concept of ethics. Okay? Now, what is the concept of ethics that Rasulavech is going to draw from the from the metaphysics of the world. Okay, now, he does this beginning on page 40, which is entitled, God is Owner of All Life. Rabbi Soloveitchik wants to explain a halachic concept of ownership. And ownership meaning that God owns the world. And that's going to be a very, very important halachic concept. In fact, in these same lectures in Genesis, the Blau lectures, Rabbi Soloveitchik explains the first Rashi, the Chumash, which raised the question, why did the Torah begin, why did the Torah not begin with the first commandment, which is HaKodesh Zelachem Rosh Chodoshim, right, that the first Chodesh would be Chodesh Nisan, as we call Nisan. 
Why the, but why instead did the Torah begin with creation? And the answer is, as, as well known answer is given, it came to um, retort those nations who claimed that the Jewish people were Gazlanim, that they stole El Yisrael. Kodesh Baruch says that, in fact, actually the land belongs to me. So Vechik has a very interesting interpretation of that Rashi. He understands the Rashi is saying, before I speak about the mitzvahs, why should I, what, wh- why am I obligated to keep the mitzvahs? Or Slavichik's answer is that creation implies a concept of ownership. I think this is the primordial notion of intellectual property. Kodesh Bochel creates a world, he thereby owns the world. The most basic concept, ethical concept, maybe even ontological concept, is ownership. And so the person creates something, he owns it. If a person lives in this world, he's required to live by the owner's laws. So in other words, before I ask the question, before I tell you what the commandments are, tell me, why should I keep the commandments? The answer is, if you believe that God created the world, so therefore, man is a tenant in this world. A tenant is subject to the laws of the Balabais, of the landlord. And therefore, the Torah begins with Breshit, this is my understanding of Rashi, in order to give reason why people should keep the commandments. That's what Rabbi Salaam answer is. It's nothing to do with the non-Jewish nations. What? Nothing to do with the non-Jewish nations. Kiviyachal, because the non-Jewish nations who lived in Al Israel didn't keep the laws of God, and therefore they were thrown out. Okay, now, so now like this. Rabbi Salaam wants to establish a concept of ownership, which, as I've shown to you, told you, ownership is a very fundamental principle. In fact, actually, Kodesh would see that ownership is the most fundamental principle. Now, and of course, the sins of the Dohamabul, right? The sins of the B'nai Elohim is in fact actually a sin of Hamas, which Rabbi is identified with ownership. Now, so therefore, and, and obviously ownership is a very, very halacha concept. At the very end of this chapter, Rabbi speaks about the concept of the Bechor, the firstborn, Bikurim, Tumas, Maisras, Chala, as actually giving to a Kaddish Baruch Hu first rights, or the first, before a person eats it, because that's an acknowledgement of ownership. In other words, there are many myriad halachas, both in plants and in animals, which are connected with this notion that a Kaddish Baruch Hu, that God owns the world, and therefore one has to give him his proper you know, um, uh, you know his, his due before one partakes of the world. As actually the Gemara Bracha, as Lamed speaks about actually that a person has to make a bracha, before, and if not, he's stealing. It's called gezel because Kodesh Baruch Hu owns the world and gives it to man only on the condition that man actually, in fact, gives a Kodesh Baruch Hu's due. Now, if this is true that ownership is this fundamental halacha concept, which comes with the Yashar is not identifying with the halacha, but also with the, these major sins in history, dohamabul. What is the metaphysical basis for such a concept? So Rasulavechik, interestingly enough, uses the concept which we've spoken about is the concept of God's imminence. And let me explain, let me read you sections here from the book, and then after that I'm going to put it in, in the context of what we've been speaking about the last 
for Shi'urim. Says Rabbi Soloveitchik, on page 41, God is not only the active creator, but also the passive sufferer of the cosmic drama. The Bible is very far from sharing the views which were later espoused by the medieval philosophers in their tireless crusade against any anthropomorphism. By assigning to God pure actuality to the exclusion of all responsive behavior, one detaches him from his world and renders practical religion almost absurd. We have seen that life in the natural organic realm is not something in total genera different from divine life. On the contrary, all life is rooted in God and can be traced to Him. Life, in quotation marks, in the Bible is a unique attribute of God that conveys the real essence of Him, capital H. Now, Rabbi Salvechik says in page 42, here a new concept evolves from Vayipach Pa'apab Nishmah all life considered by Judaism is belonging to God. His exclusive absolute ownership rights to all living creatures, to everything that has been redeemed from lifelessness and dead matter, and raised to the plane of life. God holds every living being in his private ownership and accesses full dominion over it. Now, why is this true? So, in accordance, Bochu owns all life. How, in fact, actually does he own all life? So, Rabbi Soloveitchik says, in fact, he actually goes even further. He says that um, God, according to Baruch, who is identified, is a unique attribute of God that conveys the real essence of him. And then he says, and because all life, we, we connect life with, with, with God, therefore, according Baruch, owns all life. Now, in fact, actually, how is, in fact, um, life connected with God? So for this, we have to actually take several, look at some other places. He says, um, he says, murder is Hamas. Murder is called Hamas. Why is this true? For I rob another person of his life, which is granted him by God. And then he brings the Pasuk, the verse, whoever sheds man's blood by man, shall his blood be shed. For in the image of man, God man, made he man. Tzalem actually signifies life as a divine grant to man. By slaying man, the murderers committing Hamas, taking illegitimate possession of divine rights. However, in page 60, when he speaks about Tzalem Elohim, he says the following thing. But does not the concept of Tzalem Elohim denote a new transcendental addendum to human being, one that is non-existent in nature? Let us not forget that God is seen under two aspects. Number one, that of transcendence and infinity. Number two, under that of imminence and confinement. Salem Elohim refers exactly to the second aspect. Man is, God is confined within the cosmos, present in his creation. Only because of his presence, he guides and rules the cosmos. Kodesh rules the cosmos because he's imminent in the world. The Balatanya. In fact, Rasulovechik says this again on page 76. On page 76, there he says, right? Judaism differs from Christianity. Christianity viewed instinct as corrupt and sinful. Man's divine essence asserts itself in the spirit, which is always instead of all with the flesh. Judaism rehabilitates the flesh by offering it the attribute of tzelem, 
attaching the quality of divine image to the biological forces in man. According to the Yoshebeer Solavechik, the Tzalem Elokim, which is the divine force, the Ispashtus self within man, and gives man Tzalem Elokim, that means that what we're doing is that if you're, that, that's God's ownership of the world. God's ownership of the God owns the world because God is the world. He permeates through the world. God, through the Kavain self, permeates the world and by so doing constitutes the life of the world, Mamalikolalman, and because of that, therefore owns the entire world. So therefore, if a person kills another person, Rabbi Salavajik says, this is called Hamas. Because he's taking something which is not his. It's God's. In fact, so the world, especially biological world, especially blood, because Adam Hu Nefesh, the blood represents the life force which best illustrates the permeation of the divine force, the Kava Ein Sof, the Ilan Vital, within man's biological essence, this in fact <coughs> represents God's ownership of the world. Man, who tries to encroach upon this, be it man, be it an animal, right, is guilty of Hamas, because he is taking possession of something which he has no right to. So what Arasalavechik does, in my opinion, is he presents a metaphysical basis of ownership, right? This basis is in fact actually God's imminence within the biological world. This is Abyashat Besalavechik. Now, it's very, very interesting that Besalavechik actually brings this to even a very, very interesting, a very, very interesting point. He says the concept of Corbin, animal sacrifice, flows directly from these metaphysical, mystical springs. Now listen to this. He says on page 43, Every life is indebted to God, is held by God absolutely, and must surrender itself upon demand. And indeed, God demands sacrifices, including the very life of man. Because man is part of God. That's Salam Kim. The pagan ritual, listen to this, <clears throat> the pagan ritual of human sacrifice was prompted by a motive which is basically true. Now, we don't hold like that. He says, no. So he says, you're right. The error of paganism consisted in separating the ethos from the cult. Ritual demands human sacrifice. The ethos, appreciating life as precious, forbids. The substitution for human sacrifice was in fact actually the carbon. So like this. God demands man's life because man's life is, is part of God. On the other hand, right, there's ethics. One cannot encroach upon something else, right? You can't encroach upon something else. God by imitate cannot encroach upon something else. You can't kill another person because that's against our ethics. That's encroach upon somebody else. So what's the compromise? The carbon of an animal. Sacrifice of an animal. The sacrifice of an animal is in place of sacrificing a person. 
That's what Rabbi Soloveitchik says. In other words, here, the Torah has created, which would say the solution to this contradiction between God's claim on man and God's ethics. How does the Torah, in fact, do this? This is the notion, the, the, the yesoid of a korban, of a sacrifice. This is a very, very, very interesting way of looking at a korban. Now, in fact, this is that, of course, there are sources, bakeres, of a of right, in the Rishonim. For example, the Ramban understands that the purpose of a korban is that a person is supposed to understand that this is for sinning, a person, this is actually supposed to be happening to a person himself. And rather, he does this by sacrificing an animal. But once again, there the Ramban is not going so far. The Ramban is just saying is that as an act of, um, of, um, of atonement for sin, right? A person is supposed to vicarious, somehow vicariously um, suffer or identify with what's happening with the sacrificed animal. But Soloveitchik takes this a step further. In terms of the concept of the imminence, God demands the life of man because the life of man is actually God. On the other hand, the ethics is not to encroach upon someone else because then God, of course, has to be an ethical, right? That's called Selam Elohim. Therefore, how do we, how do we mekayim, how do we, in fact, how do we reconcile these two conflicting um, approaches? It's done through the concept of a sacrifice of an animal. Through the carbon of an animal, therefore, we reconcile this these two approaches contradict this irreducible dichotomy. The Colvin is the means by which we express both of them, and therefore that is the Yusoida Colvin. Yeah. Is that not still encroaching upon a certain life force? As he's been So obviously you would have to say that since already the Torah has for, has somehow compromised and given man to kill an animal, at least the animal has to take upon itself part of the solution. In other words... And what's the motivation for that compromise? Because man already is doing that? Right, right. Because and that, and that's what Rasulah says before that. That actually the first call is after Noyach. Is Noyach. In other words, once man right, has already been permitted, God has, has given in to man, right, to allow him to eat animals, so therefore now at least we have the, the means by which man actually can, in fact, um, come to a solution. Yeah. yeah I missed, it seems as though God's that ethics is almost something independent of the will of God. I don't, Robert was calling it God's ethics, but surely God's ethics is as, as identical with God's will. No, no, so, uh, yeah, but so that, that's what I think, like, so that's why I think, I, I think the very Soloveitchik wants to stand is ethics, ethics and cult. I, I know, but yeah. if God demands human sacrifice, does that not make, that, that defines ethics? Better? No, God, well, God demands man, possession of man. Fine. On the other hand, though, God's, the ethos of God, See, once again, remember well, Soloveitchik... Who defines the ethos of God? Oh, like oh, so, so no, no, no. So I think Soloveitchik... See, I think, and I think here Soloveitchik understands ontology and ethics are one and the same. In other words, the ontology is that God constitutes the world. So therefore, that in fact actually um, has two consequences. Everything is part of God, meaning that God somehow desires, to, desires man. On the other hand, though, since ontology and ethics are, are united, so therefore the ethics of... God's permeation of the world is that one cannot encroach upon someone else because one encroaches upon God. So, I mean, obviously, if ontology and ethics are linked, so therefore, God is also subject to that ethics. If that's true, we have this Urdus with economy. That's what I understand his argument is. In fact, the fact is that, you know, 
pagan sacrifice, human sacrifice, made a mistake. They didn't separate the ethics from the. They, they, they put they the. Don't have any right. In other words, it's not ontology and ethics are one. It's either all ontology or all ethics. Judaism is brisk, two dinner. There's two dinner. It's a din of ontology and din of ethics, or a din of possession and a din of being at one. So, in other words, that's what we saw the matrix solution. In any case, we have here, phrasing enough is, the metaphysical base of the halacha. He goes on at the very end of the chapter and speaks about Bechoyah, the firstborn, speaks about Bikurim, he speaks about Chala, speaks about Tumas. All of this is an acknowledgement of God's possession of the world. And once again, this also is a halacha consequence of, um, or somebody understands, God's innate ownership ownership, in fact, of the, um, of, of the world through his permeation, through this imminence, through the Balatanya, the Malakal Almen, of the Ein Soif within the world, which is most vividly illustrated by what's called Tzad Balokim, and of course the Dam, which is the Nefesh. Okay, this will conclude this fifth lecture on the emergence of ethical man. Um, the book is not only very interesting, it will continue to be interesting, but from the other close place, Yushalayim B'Rakadish, until next week, be well, Kultuv.